Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Hello again. Welcome to Two Guys, One Book. I'm Brian. I'm Tim. And today we are talking about Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, or Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. This is a book I picked. I selected this book because I've always wanted to re- uh, read a book by Malcolm Gladwell. I have never read one of his books, but I am a fan of his podcast, Revisionist History. I enjoy hearing the stories he tells through that and wanted to see what his books were about. And I think Tim was going into this with a heavy dose of skepticism <laughs> about this book, but essentially, I'll give you an overview. Essentially, <laughs> this is a book about human beings, our ability to process things within our subconscious, to make determinizations or decisions without us really even realizing that we've made up our mind already. Or and Determinization? De- I don't think that's Yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> Whatever. Determinization. <laughs> Sorry. No, ahead. it's fine. It's fine. But like, all right, so how would you describe this book? All right, then? so I uh, I tried preparing for this, <laughs> I think, more than you did. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I have laid it's out... true. He, he put three tasks, like, in the first chapter. The first task is to convince you that decisions made quickly can be every bit as good as de- decisions made cautiously and deliberately. And then the second task of Blink, when our powers of rapid cognition go in disarray, they do so for a specific and consistent set of reasons, and those can be identified and understood. And the final task is to convince you that our snap judgments and first impressions can be educated and controlled. I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Malcolm Gladwell said it. (laughs) I won't take credit for it. Right, right. So, going into this, did it, did, was it exactly what you thought it was? Like, what, what was your first, what was, going into this, what was your mindset? Like, this is bull crap, he's just <laughs> twisting the facts and stories to suit the narrative that he wants. So, going into this, I sort of pictured Malcolm Gladwell as a pop scientist or pseudoscientist with these kind of mainstream books that aren't necessarily contributing a lot of, like, depth or great research and... I sort of still think that there were parts I liked to the book, definitely, but on the whole, I still wasn't very impressed. And I know I came in with some prejudgments, but I'll explain in depth as we go along why I think the way I do. What did you think of the book? Oh, I liked it. Like I said, I'm a fan of his podcast, so it was very interesting to see how he writes very much like he talks. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I appreciate that, because like... I think we have a sense that books are like they can take time to craft their words and their then their structures of their sentences and what they want to say and get it very precise. And I think maybe I think he probably does that for the podcast as well. Is he knows what he wants to say and how to deliver it. And so I guess it's just a similar process that he has for book and podcast. So they sound very similar and I appreciate that, but he does it in a way that I think makes it sound natural and organic and he does a lot of research i mean like all right all right research being a relative term because he's not the one in a laboratory performing experiments he reads about scientists and people doing experiments 
and then he goes and talks to them and tries to explain to us what these mean and what could this, you know, uh, tell us about human beings. Right. Right. He's a good writer. I appreciate his style. I think he does have a way with words that is effective and well done. But as far as the research, my biggest gripe with him is that he's a a writer, right, by background. Mm -hmm. And it's like he's masquerading as a social scientist or a psychologist Mm -hmm. and drawing these conclusions and sort of cherry picking these studies across different domains and trying to weave them together and connect them to suit his narrative which some of that might work, some of it might be accurate, but I was just skeptical of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. In general. I knew you were. Yeah. <laughs> not everything, but a fair amount. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Um, no, I mean, I was not skeptical. I was not, I did not have any negative. You believe everything in this book? No. <laughs> I mean, no, of course not. Like, but I feel like, and I don't think there's a that that's a bad thing if you do believe everything in this book. But that's just it. I mean, he's collecting experiments and research done by others in a ma- manner to help try to explain how human beings make decisions. And these are the ones he chose to group together. So I, I guess I can see your point about how he is he could be seen as cherry-picking, but I feel like he is selecting ones that he truly believes relate to each other and complement each other's re- research and an- anecdotes to explain how human beings think. And we can give specific examples of the right. studies, right. but I think my biggest problem with these is that a lot of them are just sort of isolated studies with small sample sizes that haven't been repeated. So to just you know take one here and one there it feels like you could find just about any study to justify any point of view. That's what I felt was not scientific about this. Sure, but I think like that that's how the research gets started. Like they don't have I mean, they do the, they do enough. They have enough of a sample size to come up with a hypothesis of why the results they're getting or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sure, they might some things might need further exploration, but I also feel like these are published results in, I would assume, to be reputable uh, uh, publications that Malcolm Gladwell is, is finding these through. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, didn't he have a, a section of notes in the back at the book? Yeah, I'm not saying they're not credible. Right. I just think um, he you just, think he'll that, just you use just one study. If there are, someone else could write a book and pick all the opposite ones studies of that Malcolm yeah. Gladwell chose and come up with a completely different narrative. It's called a wink. <laughs> oh, <God. Stop> laughing. <laughs> that was stupid. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, how long were you waiting for that to that one? <laughs> but you could make the opposite book because he does just take one study to All right. like justify one point of view. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. yes. It, it, I did feel like it did get into the weeds a little bit about all these names of all these different people doing all these different studies, but I felt like he did a good job of referencing them later. Like, he didn't just say the person's name, like, so-and-so believed this. He said, so-and-so, who did this study that you remember from three chapters before, yeah. also said this. But So, 
One note about that. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that sort of bothered me because <laughs> I know I'm coming off as picky here. Yeah, but, very. <laughs> but he threw so many stories into here that I think his message would have been better if he just focused on the ones that were that could have been the most important. And then mm-hmm. when he tries to reference ones from earlier, he'll reference one from the first chapter in the last chapter, and it's like it's hard to just place every detail. So sure. I mean, I can uh, yeah empathize with you there that. Uh, sometimes he starts talking about what was one he start he was talking about Paul Van Ripper and the Millennium Challenge, but then he goes then talks about improv. Mm-hmm. So I mean, kind of like you know, I wanted to know more details about the Millennium Challenge, I guess, but uh, he, he that wasn't the point. The point was focusing on how he managed his team during the Millennium Challenge. It it jumps around a bit, which yeah. is a little disorienting. Dis- right. Disoriented. Disorienting. Disorienting. But uh, to his credit, he is a good storyteller. And I think he's good at um, setting the stage and introducing the characters and his language of describing them. Mm -hmm. But why don't we just go through a few examples of um, studies we liked and didn't like. Okay. That might kind of drill down. I mean, so so is that what your... That that was your focus is like you were... Some of the studies you liked and some that you didn't. Is, was that the thing? Like your least favorite part was a certain study and your favorite part was another study? Or was it kind of like just the way he intertwined things? Or It's a combination. Okay. Um, there were studies I liked and ones I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And then I do have kind of issues with the overall approach that he took. Mm-hmm. But I think it might help if we just dive down in the studies and then sure. piece it up. No, that's fine. So like, what's one you liked or didn't like and why? Oh, I liked the Pepsi Challenge. Really? That oh, was yeah. my least favorite one. Least favorite? Yeah. Why? Because it felt so, like, oh, simple and, like, corporate-y, brandy, like, you know. It's just like... But, but like, everyone remembers the Pepsi Challenge. I... Well, okay. I mean, maybe, I remember maybe, the idea of it. Okay. I, okay. You might be a little young. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it wasn't a big part of my life. No, I like, think it was, like, yeah, in the 80s, 90s, or whatever. But anyway, I like that because, I mean, it, it kind of, well... I like it for reasons that aren't even really what this book is about. Mm-hmm. It's just about personal preference and how taking a little sip. Well, I guess that's kind of what this book is about. A, li- a small, and this is your beef too. If you take a small sample size of Pepsi, people like Pepsi better than Coke. But if you're going to drink a whole can of it or buy a, a, a case of it to take home to have in your fridge, you're not always going to like the sweeter Pepsi over the the Coke. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like you were saying initially, this story felt a little bit out of place with the other ones because a lot of them were more social scientist oriented. Mm -hmm. And then this was more like businessy. Yeah, but this one was in a chapter about that musician. And I think that whole chapter was about what do people like? What do consumers like? Right. And... The same reason, like, all the music executives thought this musician, Kenna, was very good, but he didn't rate well with the public. And so how can we trust what the public thinks they like? Like, if, if the public thinks, you know, we, we, you know, there's marketing teams out there all across the country for on multiple, in multiple branches of consumerism that poll consumers to see what they like and don't like. But when asked directly, do they even really know what they like and don't like? Because then he went on, after the Pepsi challenge thing, he went on about margarine versus butter. How margarine had to be yellow because people were used to spreading yellow things on their toast 
And so margarine was initially white, and then they had to change it to yellow, and then it could sell better. Or the, the brandy, I think, was another one. Well, one brandy company was clearly, in a taste test, better than the other, but when you put their bottles side by side, the other one was doing better because they had a fancier bottle. It looked more like a brandy bottle than the better tasting brandy. So like, it wasn't a true reflection of what the book is about, thinking instantaneously. But it's just about, like, do we even really know what we like and don't like when given the chance to rate something? Yeah, yeah. I can understand his issue with market research and how they try to come up with a simple opinion of a product to give a story about it, but it's not always that um, easy to break down or whatever. But, like, in other parts of the book, he touches on, like, social justice and healthcare and these pretty heavy topics, and I think it undermines it a bit to just go into, like, this consumer world that's a little dry. And, sure. Yeah. I mean, I can make the argument that he's rounding it off in multiple fields, so it's not all just healthcare and and social sciences. Yeah. It's it's also marketing and pub and PR and stuff like that. I, I can understand that. I to me it felt a little scattered. Sure. And um, and but as far as what you mentioned about Kenna the musician, mm-hmm. I have a rant about that. If you <laughs> go let on. me go. Yeah, go. <laughs> so so did you have you heard of Kenna before? This I looked book? up. Uh, no, I haven't. I, I haven't. I haven't either. Yeah. I looked up some of his music. Okay. Did not like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like you said, he, in the book, Malcolm Gladwell said, Kenna uh, was really liked by these music executives, but the general public couldn't get into him, maybe because there, he wasn't easily assigned to certain categories. Like, was he hip-hop or jazz or R&B, R&B or whatever? Yeah. And um, so he's saying, like, oh, even, like, Fred Durst, from Limp Bizkit said he was the top musician. I'm like, what the hell does Fred Durst know? <laughs> like, why would you even put that in your book? That doesn't... Pre- so it was really strange. And I looked up his music and like, yeah, he's just like not... I don't think he's good. And he doesn't have a following. Like, there are musicians who don't get publicity who end up getting huge, especially with the internet these days. And this was written in like early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So it didn't take into account like people going viral or whatever. So I felt like that whole chap- that whole section was pretty silly. So... So okay, so did it miss a, did it completely miss the mark for you because it was written fifteen years ago, and and missed out and it, and it didn't factor in to how how people can be famous on the internet because in the early two thousands you didn't know. Well, it's like how you were saying. He says this guy Kenna didn't become popular because, uh, you know, people can find a way to categorize him and it's like no he didn't become popular because he just sucks and his music <laughs> sucks and he shouldn't play music sorry kenna but <laughs> he like donates to all these nonprofits and stuff so i think he's really? a good person oh yeah but i did yeah. i did youtube one video one uh, song of his you didn't like it was that you? one that he was supposed to <laughs> i didn't like it. Uh, no. what do we know we're no yeah. fred durst <laughs> 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 what a weird section. All right, I mean, all right. So that that was just one. I don't know. I I can't say I had a favorite study or or anecdote he talked about. I mean, I don't know, or least favorite. I don't. Did you do you have one that specifically stood out? Well, the Pepsi challenge was your least favorite. Mm-hmm. For real. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kenna probably. Yeah. Okay, one. Kenna. Yeah. Those that whole chapter. Right. What was your favorite then? I really like towards the end the one about blind auditions for uh, um, like symphonies or orchestras. Mm-hmm. So it used to be that very few women, if any, would get in, um, get into an orchestra because mm-hmm. the judges were all like men and the conductors 
and they would come out and play the instrument. And even if they sounded better than a male musician, uh, the inherent biases wouldn't let them get um, into the show. So they started doing blind auditions just like behind a screen. It made me think of that reality show, The Voice or whatever, that music show, yeah. like American Idol, but their backs are turned, right. which right. is pretty gimmicky, but like, mm-hmm. it's a good idea because hey. then you're not judging them. I watched a whole season of The Voice and I kind of <laughs> liked it. No, um, I'm judging you now. <laughs> <laughs> their chairs turn around. Like, yeah. It's pretty I mean, silly. It, I mean, Adam Levine and Blake Shelton, the dynamic they have there makes the show. I mean, and then later they can steal people. And I mean, it's, it's, it is much more involved. And I do like the fact that it is a blind audition. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that part of the book, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought that's a good, like, it connects to his message. The thing in general about his message, though, is he starts off like, I'm going to show you why quick uh, judgments are good and we should trust our, like, quick instincts. And then he gives all these examples about why we shouldn't. Well, Most I mean, of the evidence was against that, I feel like. That would... I don't think he explicitly said that we should always trust our gut initial instinct when we. But it's st- like the first story, right. Is about these statues that experts can tell are fakes instantly, and he's kind of leads into the book, and it's called Blink. Like it's right. supposed to be like blink of an eye. Like you right. might have a, you should yeah. trust your hunch more or something. Right, and I think that's that's what he's getting at. Is yes, trust your hunch more, but in that same vein, your hunch through social being socialized may be biased like those conductors in the in the orchestra their initial hunch was to be biased against women Mm -hmm. so trust your hunch but also analyze your hunch and make sure it's not uh, misappropriated against a certain people or certain things because you have that other bias but it wasn't that clear-cut to me when to trust when to analyze yeah. Because I don't think there is a definitive answer. Hold on. <laughs> I, I highlighted something about yeah. this. Okay. So he says, when should we trust our instincts and when should we consciously think things through? On straightforward choices, deliberate analysis is best. When questions of analysis and personal choice start to get complicated, when we have to juggle many different variables, then our unconscious thought processes might be superior. Hmm. Yep. But that's very general. It's yeah. like straightforward choice all right what is that and then what is uh you know questions of analysis and personal choice like that's everything Mm -hmm. i just feel like his language is so broad Mm -hmm. and then he tries and in general he just tries to be more profound than he is where it's like okay trust your hunch but sometimes don't oh really profound malcolm like really changing the world here this is pop science it's pseudoscience bs brian but to to counter that to Uh counter that I tried reading like Thinking Fast and Slow by uh-huh. Daniel Kahneman, yep. which is like a lot of research, more research oriented, and that yeah. won like some, I think it won a Nobel Prize or something, like he did. He won a Nobel Prize for right. his, because he's an economist. Yeah, yeah, but like behavioral or is economics. He a, yes, right. And, and he references him in the book too, Malcolm Gladwell references Daniel Kahneman. But what I'm trying to say is this book was more well written than that. It's more story oriented. Story oriented, right? That one's a little dry. It's more dry and kind of harder to get through. Okay. So I will say he's a good writer. I just don't necessarily like his approach. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. Another one I liked was the wedding, the marriage expert, who yeah. could who could watch just two couples talking about their relationship, 
and predict like 90% certainty whether or not they'll be married 10 years later or something like that. I like that study as well, uh -huh. but I'll also say he didn't elaborate on a lot of the statistics, like how many people did he analyze to get that 90% metric or like, you know what I mean? Sure, but like, so, so you want the more nuts and bolts. You want to know the details of like, why is Malcolm Gladwell trusting this study? Well, we just shouldn't accept it at face value, right? But, I mean, I feel like you could always go and find more about it. Yeah. And I think I think what you said comparing this book to, to Thinking Fast and Slow brings up a good point. Is that Malcolm Gladwell is a journalist and he's a writer. David Kahneman or Kahneman? Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. Is an economist or behavioral economist economists by trade mm -hmm. and I think that's where you see the different styles of the books mm -hmm. and he is a storyteller so he is not going to get bogged down with all those details in the study you know and I don't I personally don't need him to I'm I'm fine accepting the fact that, that this marriage expert could predict with 90% certainty whether couples would be married or divorced later yeah, I'm just wary of him extrapolating from one small isolated study a big conclusion to apply to like you know everything. Mm -hmm. That's all. But go into the marriage study more because I like I did like that one. Right. Oh yeah. I I and they had um, these different emotions. Like they they each second of the video they like graded the man and the and the woman with a specific emotion and like they had them ranked or they just had them numbered one through 20. So to, at, for shorthand that people could just write down numbers for each second with like, you know, oh, he was defensive with a, then he with a slight contempt, but then he, then he shielded it by deflecting or something like that. And I found that very interesting and how I think they boiled it down to what they called the four horsemen. So for this marriage, um, the 20 different emotions, that go on in these uh, interactions, they boil it down to the, what they call the four horsemen, defensiveness, stonewalling, criticism, and contempt. And in fact, there was one emotion that he considers most important of all, and that is contempt. So if one of those existed in the relationship dynamic, it was very likely to I think, fail. I think it was that it was that contempt persisted, not just the existence of contempt, like it persisted throughout. I think right, but you're saying if, if there was one of those four or a combination of those four, then it was less like, likely to work out. Yes, correct. Yeah, okay. Yes. And contempt was the worst. Yes. And it makes sense. Right, absolutely. If you absolutely. contempt someone in a relationship, mm -hmm. it's probably not oh, going well. No. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, and another thing they, I found interesting was for interactions, they need to have a five to one positive to negative ratio which I found was kind of heavy in the positive, but I guess that makes sense because you want continuous positive feedback when you're communicating with somebody or living with somebody or married to somebody so that, you know, you maintain the comfort of knowing you're on good terms and things are going well. It's an interesting study. I just wish it were replicated more and uh, <laughs> more transparent. So you want this book to be basically twice as no, long no, is I what you're saying. I don't need like study, 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 but I just want like not this one guy in his little lab out in here. I'm just supposed to believe that this is the case. Well, I mean, that's, that's what he was trying to get at is by Malcolm Gladwell wasn't taking multiple studies with marriage counselors 
and reviewing them all. He was taking one study of one marriage counselor and one study of a tennis coach who could predict when people are going to double fault. And the story of those art experts that knew the, the statue was a fake the moment they saw it. And he's just laying out these examples in different fields by different people that show that their gut reaction is genuinely the right one. But then he also shows with the brand study and then the Warren Harding effect. I'm basically saying, my point is that instead of focusing on the very specific topics, he is taking multiple topics from various fields and trying to thread a common theme. And I think you're saying is that you just don't buy it that all these different topics have that same thing. I, I'm just skeptical. No, I mean, maybe he's stretching at times, but some of the, I'm just skeptical of taking the study and then extrapolating and cherry picking. But also a lot of these studies, it's kind of common sense. Like, you know, an expert in tennis might have a hunch about when someone might double fault or an expert in marriage counseling might be able to tell the signs of like, you know, so like that's not entirely as profound as I thought it, he made it out to be. Yes, that's true, but I I think, yeah. But doesn't I think at one point doesn't he go through the the marriage videos and, and when he knows what to look for, mm -hmm. like that that's his thing is like, if people are coached, they can know what to look for, and I think. I mean, another yeah. part I want to talk about is is the police chapter. Well, let's talk about Warren Harding. Oh, you I, want to talk about Warren yeah, Harding first? I did like you, that. You have some more. Well, the Warren Harding era is basically people thought he looked like a good presidential person because he was like handsome and kind of tough looking or something. And so he became a politician, eventually became president, and then he was like a terrible president. Mm -hmm. So that effect just applies to a whole bunch of different things where it's like in business, like tall people get promoted more, become CEOs and things like that. And yeah, like I think that's worth noting and it's something to um, to discuss, yeah. But you, so yeah, I found that interesting too that CEOs are, are like six foot average height when the average height of a male is like five nine or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you, that doesn't, that doesn't have any weight in your, like you're like, oh well, there's not enough studies about CEO's no, height to I just determine was, that. I just said it was okay. interesting. You did say, all right. All right. <laughs> I specifically identified this story. That's enough data okay. to, for me okay. to say, okay, there's right. a pattern here. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. But we can talk about the police. Well, no, I mean, uh, yeah. I like the Warren Harding thing. He's from Ohio. Did you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, it's Yay, not, Ohio. Should we be proud of that? I know. I don't think so. Um... But yeah, um, so the police story, basically yeah. someone uh, gets shot because th these policemen acted quickly and they thought he was a criminal and he was just like pulling out his wallet and he was uh, just sort of scared of them because there was two guys of undercover cops like approaching him and they thought he was being suspicious and in a panic shot him. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that was, I mean, I like the part of the book. And I think I have several quotes from that section. I think I'll, I'll, I'll bring up what, when we do our favorite quotes. But it just was, you said this book was written in the early 2000s, but it still that part still resonates very much today. And I think that was where he was take So Malcolm Gladwell in the first part of the book was talking about these experts in statues and tennis and marriage counseling to, to point out that these experts can tell in a blink of an eye 
that whether you know something is good or bad. And when it comes to police officers and and situations, I think he he addressed that by I felt like his tangents in that chapter were very relative because he went on to talk about autism after he brought up the cop story and how people with autism do not pick up on facial expressions, cannot judge a person's feelings based on their physical appearance. And then he related that to firsthand accounts of police officers in stressful situations and how they just become face blind, I think is the way he said it. And so I found that fascinating, especially the autism thing about, because he said that the highly functioning person with autistic behavior was watching a movie, a very dramatic movie, who was afraid of Virginia Woolf, and then like during emotional moments, he was off watching a light switch or something else on the screen. And I, and as a person who doesn't know much, much about autism, I thought that was very interesting. And then also, then leading into the first-hand accounts of the police officers and how they kind of go face blind, and then how officers, he also had a little bit about when they do when I forget what police department it was, but they were they were following they were tracking the police officers like how they interacted with people and and how they followed their training, and most of the time they were good, but then like leading up to a highly stressful situation, they would be bad, and so that would put them in the position to have to react quickly and possibly make wrong decisions and then he particularly points out to a uh, police officer that says like he the police officer re, uh, you know re recounts his encounter with a 14 year old who who is pulling out a gun from his pants but he the police officer could tell by the the 14 year old's facial expressions and body language that he could have he could take another second he doesn't have to shoot him he doesn't have to shoot him and then eventually the, the guy put the gun down. So I, that chapter to me was very, uh, I guess you could say it was powerful because it still was resonant today and how you know we're so quick, both sides, the people, who, the people who support police officers no matter what and the people who side with the victim no matter what, um, they are always quick to uh, accusations on the other side. Whereas this book really highlights the fact that in those split seconds, it's what's going through your mind so is so fast and the events pass by so quickly that you just react and it doesn't really mean that you're a bad person either side you know i agree but i also think it's not to vindicate those officers because right i'm not saying you're saying that no. but okay. the thing is he also mentioned that they did things that were wrong like they shouldn't have gone out and approached this guy who was just hanging out on his doorstep because what he noticed or what he uh, wrote was that they didn't put themselves in his shoes, like his perspective. Right. Like, just because he's panicking doesn't mean he's guilty of something. Mm -hmm. He's just nervous about these people chasing him or something. So that's what I thought was interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I didn't mean to say that I defend either side. The the, the cops in that main story about, in about, what, seven seconds in the Bronx, mm -hmm. they definitely messed up. Yeah. But... Just because they mess up, it's so unfortunate that when police officers mess up that people get seriously hurt or potentially die because they're human. You know, everybody is human and we all make mistakes. And, and, and just because you make such a grave mistake, that's why I am never going to be uh, ever thought about being a police officer. And 
you know, doesn't mean that, that they're racist. But at the same time, some people need to recognize the fact that there are implicit bias, you know, in everybody. And just because you have it. And I think that's the downside is that sometimes people, when they worry about having implicit bias, they don't want to acknowledge it because acknowledging it means, oh, you secretly hate a certain type of people. You know, they're not even saying that you hate people. It's just our world around us, we're surrounded by these views of a male, a white male, you know, cat. Uh, we're surrounded by these white male Christian views of the world that can't help but affect how we view the world around us. And just because you have implicit bias does not make you a bad person. But I think you need to acknowledge that still. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, he's trying to get at that we all have subconscious biases, right. whether we realize it or not. Right. And that's kind of going back to the blind audition example of symphonies, where even though a conductor might not be biased against women, like consciously, that just because maybe he's only played with male musicians or thinks of men as better musicians or playing like certain instruments like the French horn, that he thinks they're better. Right. So, and connecting that to like the social element too um he talked about how we should have blind uh courtrooms and at the same as blind auditions which i think is really smart actually i like that idea a lot because it's about removing those biases like a jury would have looking at Mm -hmm. the um perpetrator or victim or whoever and then basing their sentence on that or their verdict Mm -hmm. guilty or not guilty so instead of seeing the victim they should or the perpetrator they should be separated and should be blind because then you're not you know it's not being based on like race or um, class or whatever. Right. I, I found that so fascinating. And like that's like the very end of the book, like in the afterword. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. I think that's the way things should be done. Because there is a dispro- disproportionately amount of minorities in the prison system uh, in relation to their you know ratio of the population. And why that is, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. They just remove... The perpetrator from the courtroom and like he said they communicate through email or through a, a intermediary and handle things that way and remove the name or just remove any in- indication of their race or class because class has a big thing to do with it too or whatever so that the decision can be made completely impartially mm-hmm. i agree because he says justice should be blind so and it right. seems really easy like what's right. it's just like a social thing holding us back from changing or like tradition or whatever yes. i think i think it's heavily steeped in tradition because like isn't the isn't it in the constitution like you have a right to a, a fair trial trial it's like you right? face a jury of your peers yes. and they're like face so yes <laughs> right i don't know i just i no i think i think that i mean you talk i mean that's ingrained in the constitution or the way the country was founded so i think that is definitely part of it that's why it's been such a part of our culture for 250 years you can years. update it i think it'd be fair oh i completely it's agree just, tim yeah. but like come on i mean do you <laughs> in the state of the world we today, made amendments yeah but are we ever going to have another amendment to the constitution why not because because this doesn't have to be an amendment to the constitution I right, think. right right but but you're touching on a bigger point though like will there be another amendment to the constitution i don't think there will be because no government wants to admit, no Congress is willing to admit that the Constitution needs changing. When that's the whole point of the Constitution. Well, it's been like 30. <laughs> 27, I think, right? But still, when was the last one? Was it... I forget. I don't even know. Well, this is not a civics or government podcast. Yeah, let's so. go back to the book. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. 
But yeah, that that afterward about the blind uh, justice should be blind was, was that was my good. favorite idea from the book, mm-hmm. and I think he had a great point. Yeah. Um, so you want to do quotes or you know, yeah, we can. I'm good to go to quotes now. Mm-hmm. I guess one thing I'll start out as saying is maybe not a direct quote, but he mentioned that his style is kind of like an intellectual adventure story, mm. which I think is a good way to capture it, this genre. So I thought that was a good way to, to describe it. If you go on. Hmm. Well, I mean, this was in the, I think, first chapter about the marriage counseling. Uh, but then he says, he talks about thin slicing is his, is his terminology for basically taking a very thin little sample size and trusting that that represents the larger picture. I guess this is your biggest, this is the whole beef you have with this book is that all he, all Malcolm Gladwell is doing is thin slicing and saying that with our hunches, we can trust our hunches a lot of times. And so he says, thin slicing is part of what makes the unconscious so dazzling, but it's also what we find most problematic about rapid cognition. How is it possible to gather the necessary information for a sophisticated judgment in such a short time? The answer is that when our unconscious engages in thin slicing, what we are doing is an automated, accelerated, unconscious version of what Gottman, the marriage counselor guy, does with his videotapes and equations. Can, can a marriage really be understood in one setting? Yes, it can. And so can lots of other seemingly complex situations. Yeah, but it's just what... Okay, no. <laughs> no, listen. The, you know what? In the marriage chapter, yeah. the yeah but was, a, was one of their little passive-aggressive things that people do. Did, uh, did you catch that? Because... Yeah. Because... You act like you're agreeing, but you're really disagreeing. It's a good thing we're not married. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're not married to this book. Yeah. What, what bothers me is his definitive tone. Because mm. he'll say, like, that's what allowed Gottman to understand marriage mm-hmm. in X amount of seconds. It's like, he just, he sounds so sure about it mm-hmm. when I'm saying... I oh, just, no, Tim, I, I yeah. completely agree. Your gripes are have validation, but you just gripe about everything, so I'm just going <laughs> to... I praise the book in a lot of ways. <laughs> I'm just saying, it bothers me when anybody is too confident yes, about I know. I like, know. any findings. It's just because you're so insecure about everything, you just... <laughs> All right. I'm just saying that he could have more humility in his uh, approach. He's not even a scientist. He's a journalist. The world no. needs more scientists. Oh, God. So this quote is actually him quoting Freud, but I think it explains his thesis better than he did. So. Oh, you're using the Freud, Freud quote at the end? Towards the end? Yeah. Are no. you going to use it? Yeah, I like that one. Okay. No, go ahead. Uh, when making a decision of minor importance, I have always found it advantageous to consider all the pros and cons. In vital matters, however, such as the choice of a mate or a profession, the decision should come from the unconscious, from somewhere within ourselves. In the important decisions of personal life, we should be governed, I think, by the deep inner needs of our nature. So, yeah, I mean, basically it just boils down to trust your gut. Yeah, Which right? is, you know, I mean, we've all heard that advice, though. Right, he, right. He, um, you know, verbalizes it well, or articulates it well. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yes, he does. Here's a good one. I think this is about, there was these two ladies he had lunch with that were food critics or food, professional food tasters or whatever. And he was so, he was like, where do you go for lunch with people who are, you know, their job is to taste food. And he went, he talked about the lunch, which sounded great. But 
Here was another quote I liked. Our unconscious reactions come out of a locked room, and we can't look inside that room. But with experience, we become expert at using our behavior and our training to interpret and decode what lies behind our snap judgments and first impressions. It's a lot like what people do when they are in psychoanalysis. They spend years analyzing their unconscious with the help of a trained therapist until they begin to get a sense of how their mind works. I think that might be my favorite quote of the book, that yeah. and the Freud quote, yeah. So because, yeah. because that's what he's getting at, is that these instantaneous thoughts, these of thin slicing a small sample and we come up with a conclusion. Do we know that that conclusion is definitive? No, but a lot of times our gut is, you know, what our mind processes in nanoseconds that we would process over. I think he has another quote in here that just because we are taught that, you know, decisions made with more information take more time to come up with the definitive answer are more thorough than snap decisions. But this is saying that our unconscious can make these decisions so fast for us that it's like in, inside a locked room. So we have to take the time to analyze why we think that so fast. And is that right? And then finally here, for people who do spend time in psychoanalysis, they spend the years learning about themselves and their brain and like, this is where, do you trust your gut? Or maybe you have an implicit bias. And maybe, you know, you have to adjust for things where you don't want to jump to conclusions because you may be wrong. And this is where I think that determining when to trust your gut and when not to comes in. I mean, like he's saying, just beware. But do you think in general, in this day and age, trust your gut is good advice with how quickly people are getting like angry and how heated and tense the atmosphere is? I, the whole point of thinking fast and, and slow, a lot mm. of the studies are basically showing how people are bad at judging statistics and have all of these biases that cause them to make assumptions that are very inaccurate. And so, and you see that a lot in the political environment, how sure. people come up with these crazy um, opinions and ideas. So I think it's almost a little dangerous advice to be like, we should trust our gut more. Yes, I agree. Um, that it can be dangerous to say, trust your gut in these times. But I think also that thinking fast and slow, I haven't read the book, but behavior economics focuses on mass people, the mass society, right? And that mass society is going to behave rationally and take the best course for their bottom line or whatever, right? No? No, it's all about how people believe, behave irrationally. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole that's why he won the Nobel Prize though is because all the economists thought that when given oh, yeah. time, that's what I'm getting at. Is that's why he won the Nobel Prize was because he turned it on heads that said no, people don't behave rationally because they believe whatever they believe and then act upon that. So you're right. I mean, I don't know where I stand on all this, but like, I I'm just trying to say this is what Malcolm Gladwell is saying. Yeah. You know, at, at the end of the day. I guess all I'm saying is I wish he made it a little more clear cut about trust your gut in these situations. And be more skeptical in these ones. I know he touched on it, but I think he could have touched more yeah, on it. but I don't think you can. I don't think you can say, like, so in XYZ, trust your gut, but in ABC, don't. Because I think everybody's different. It's about, it's about introspection about who you are 
and can't do you have the expertise to say like I can't go to a to the uh, the what was that the museum in LA that bought that statue mm-hmm. I can't go to that museum look at that statue and say it's a fake because I don't have the expertise and I can acknowledge that I don't but you know if you if you spend time to analyze how you process things and learn about yourself then maybe you know that yes these things I feel certain about. I feel certain that when I go to Chipotle, I'm going to get the same thing, you know? <laughs> You're an expert on Chipotle. Yes, <laughs> right? I can trust my gut when it comes to Chipotle. Right. But I can't trust my gut when I'm going to look at a statue. I guess one counter-argument, though, is even with experts in certain areas, a lot of the time they can get sort of um, tunnel vision and then not be open to other ideas. You know what I'm getting sure, at? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's what the museum kind of got into trouble with is that they had all the scientific stuff. They sampled the marble and it had aging on the surface or whatever. They did the scientific stuff right. that was telling one thing and all these experts were saying another. Okay, I can think of a good case study, I think, that illustrates yeah. this point. So remember the healthcare one yeah. about um, chest pains? Yes. So basically, um, in... When patients would go in for chest pains, mm-hmm. a lot of the time it wouldn't get diagnosed as at risk for a heart attack. So this one hospital started focusing just on like three or four, just a handful of like main factors. And it turns out that those are the most important factors. So they were better at accurately diagnosing right. potential heart attacks, which makes sense. But then he sort of says, you don't need any of this other information. It's not useful. Just focus on this set of information. But to me, it felt like a false dichotomy where it's not like more information is bad. It's just that this is, this should be weighted more, like these three factors. Mm-hmm. And then it saves the doctor. It frees them up, their decision-making ability to focus more on the patient and like connect with them. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense in a way, but I don't think more information is inherently bad just because some information is more important but than I others. But I think people fall victim to information overload though. And so I, I, there's a quote here about the heart stuff, the heart attack warning signs stories in the same chapter as the Millennium Challenge with the military. And so his whole point in that chapter was that more information is not always better. That the blue team, the good guys, were, were, were taking time to have all these meetings and discuss and analyze all this data where the red team, Paul Van Ripper, was this letting his guys go out and shoot from the hip and just trust their gut. And then he talked about the heart attack checklist there as well. And he says, that extra information is more than useless. It's harmful. It confuses the issues. What screws up doctors when they are trying to predict heart attacks is that they take too much information into account. And you think that is BS, right? Okay, let me ex- <laughs> let me quickly expand on my point. Uh-huh. So I agree information overload is an issue and that more information isn't necessarily always better. But for him to say more information is harmful, just as a statement, is just sort of absurd. Because, like, that doesn't make sense. It's just about how you interpret the information and how well it informs your decisions and how you're acting upon it. Right. But, but that, yeah. that, that heart checklist thing was vital because it gave doctors specific things to look for Mm -hmm. and so they could disregard the noise if they had other things pop up that they you know all they they knew that if it was those four things to admit the person in the hospital and and that is valuable yeah but okay let me give you this perspective (laughs) uh i agree but 
<laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so if you had an algorithm predicting uh, someone at risk for a heart attack, so you're just going to ignore this information and never think to include any of these minor details when to unbeknownst to us, there are things that contribute to a heart attack that we have no idea of. And for us to neglect that and say nothing else is important, I feel like we might be missing out on stuff that could help inform our um, predictions. Okay. You're looking at it purely from a data point of view. and it, Right? I mean, yeah, kind of. And I guess, I guess his whole point is this, that fact that doctors are smart people. They know they they take in all that information and they try to analyze and, and build a picture when really all they need really need to do is worry about those four things, because, I mean like and it, and he also says it's not to belittle what doctors do, it's because like we don't know what to listen for when we are listening to somebody's lungs that are filling with liquid because their heart is failing or whatever, you know yeah we don't know how to do that doctors have the training to do that it's just they have to it's just pointing out the important things that supersede all the other data. I found it interesting how it was hard to get a lot of doctors on board with mm -hmm. this approach because everyone's kind of got their ego or pride to deal with mm -hmm. and they say it can't be this simple as these three things. Right. I have to come up with a conclusion like on my own. Right. Which not to say every doctor is like that, but like um, in any job or role, you want people want to feel kind of autonomous and oh yeah like they're independently coming up with something and, it, and if and another point is like if doctors are making the decision and signing off on it they want to make sure that they're certain in their mind mm -hmm. so it just i think it also took a while for them just to trust that oh these are the only things that you need to worry about because like you said they want to take in all that data yeah I, yeah my only you know takeaway point is just let's not neglect more information in the future that could be helpful <laughs> like you know what i mean that's all. i know what you mean okay do you have another quote um no you go ahead you sure uh, all right now all right so this was about this was in the afterword because he was talking about chancellorville we didn't touch on that one yet about this general for the in the civil war general for the union had Robert E. Lee basically surrounded and outnumbered, but Robert E. Lee beat him because he was just more confident and I don't just more experience. Yes, more experience and and could just outwit the Union general. But so this is where he talks about uh, the second lesson in Blink. But I feel like this can I'll read it and then I'll explain. Understanding the true nature of instinctive decision making requires us to be forgiving of those people trapped in circumstances where good judgment is imperiled. And that, I instantly think of the police, you know, the story, because we have no idea what it's like to be in that situation. Now granted, they put themselves in a bad situation. And nowadays they're having more training and things to, to go along with that. But we, yeah, we just got to be empathetic and forgiving and realize that just because someone has implicit bias doesn't make them a bad person. And people need to be more accepting of themselves if they have implicit bias. Because if they acknowledge it, they can get training to improve upon it. And I think that would solve a lot of issues. Yeah, uh, and it, it's not always implicit bias, though, because... If someone is pulling out their wallet and it looks like 
you just see a dark object and it's nighttime, mm -hmm. then you might assume it's a gun when they're just right. trying to show you their ID or something. Right. So, yeah. But I agree that a lot of it is implicit. And right, not, right. Yeah. And, it's, and it's just about being forgiving to other humans when they make human errors. And even if those errors hurt people, unfortunately. Well, one of the cop things I thought was interesting was that between one officer squad cars and two officer squad cars, yes. he said the one officer ones get in much fewer situation, like, um, you know, incidents. Right. Which, I mean, it makes sense because, like, they probably wouldn't put themselves in those situations as much just out of, like, their own self-preservation. Right. But also, in general, they're nicer to people. So as a police force, you might think, oh, two officers together is safer and more mm -hmm. they think things over better. But one is really more um, easygoing right. because they probably wouldn't put themselves at risk for... Yeah. Something. Yeah, good point. I'm glad we brought that up because that was a, a point I found very much interesting in the book. Mm -hmm. I think that's worthwhile noting. Yeah. Yeah. Malcolm. <laughs> okay, one more. Uh, I don't think I have a specific quote from this, but you mentioned this earlier, the autism mm -hmm. part and the facial recognition. Mm -hmm. I thought that whole section was interesting. And uh, also, there were these scientists who studied facial recognition in general, and they could tell certain emotions based on the positioning of your eyebrows or your lips. And then I watched some videos of them in like, yeah, oh, really, yeah, it was really cool because <laughs> uh, because they would have a subject and tell them to like furrow their brow and move like this here and that there, and like I like tried it, and you'd start feeling sad instantly depending on how they position your face. Or like, you know, there's all these subtleties to our emotions. It's not as simple as happy, sad, whatever. It's just, you know, contempt or like some specific emotion depending on very certain parts of your face. And then to talk about people with autism, you know, on the other side where they just can't recognize anything at all. They have that facial blindness. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that whole facial section was very interesting as well. I mean, that's just, I, I mean, I like this book because it just was, it had a lot of little interesting tidbits through it and oh what was the i had a thought about the facial one oh how when the two guys were studying all the movements the face can make they noticed that when they were doing during a section when they were making a repeated sad or angry faces they were having lousy days and and it just goes to show how you know we like i think he says in the book we assume that our feelings dictate our, our internal feelings and emotions dictate how we look and act and feel when in fact we can you know manipulate our feelings based on how we look and act and feel mm -hmm. and that's what those scientists discovered when they were doing all the sad and and and, and depressing faces they felt sad and depressed and it's just helpful to be reminded that the fake it till you make it kind of mentality of like if you put on a positive if you sit stand up straight and smile and, and try to be jovial, maybe that can help you get through a bad day or, you know, uplift your spirits when needed. Yeah. So Thanks, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> 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 I'm just kidding. It was very inspiring by him. <laughs> well, I just feel like I've been so, I mean, I, I didn't mean to harp on the police, the police yeah. um, topic so much, but it, it was something I found very uh, meaningful still today. It's an important topic, yeah. and yeah, definitely still. So I want to relevant. be more uplifting too. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I emotions follow facial, um, you know, cues or 
positioning. But at the same time, how relevant is that to Blink or the overall message of the book? <laughs> so he'll well, just throw in these interesting tidbits, but it's like, does it connect to the larger thing? Well, the facial, the facial movements section was having it then I think led to the autism one, which helped explain that police or people in stressful situations become face blind. And so they can't read. He was basically saying, you know, like in stressful situations, you can't always rely on yourself to be able to read other people because you're just in tunnel vision, so to speak, or yeah. something like that. But his words were, I think police officers become temporarily autistic. He literally said that, yeah, which, first of all, insensitive. But also, it's just sort of, that's him as a journalist yes. making some yes. broad, overarching scientific mm-hmm. assumption. You know, he was, yeah, he's a journalist. He's allowed to be a little, you know, expressive with his language. <laughs> him. You know, is that a crime? You know. <laughs> I don't know. All right, should we do rating? Uh, or do you have any more quotes? I, I think I'm all quoted out. I think, um, I think I think we did good. I think we touched on pretty much every section. Yeah, I think I covered what I wanted. I thought it was good. So what do you want to rate it? Well, it was my pick. I picked this book. I'm glad I picked it. I wanted to read Malcolm Gladwell. I'm glad I did now. But at, yes, a lot of interesting stories. But to me, it's still a three out of a five. I just that's you know I I think he's a good writer. It's just I think maybe some of his other books I might like better. Mm-hmm. We'll see. What Outliers, David and Goliath. I think I think point. I think David and Goliath would be one that I think I would like. Yeah. I haven't read anything else, but yeah, me neither. I probably won't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, Tim. What's uh, your I'm torn between a two and a three. Yeah. You um, want to cop out? You can cop out if you want. What do you, like not give a rating or do two and a half? A two and a half. Um. You said no half stars. <laughs> I did say no half stars, though, but that's just. More of a personal maxim than it is. Well, that's so you don't choose rule. three and a half, so you don't choose seven versus right. six and eight. Right. But I feel like with two and three, it's like it's a big four and six. Yeah. So like five out of ten is still a rating. Seven out of ten is a cop out. Mm, you know I what see. I, mean? I see. So we should a say five? no three and a half stars okay. is the new rule. <laughs> I see. I see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really overthinking this. I yes, should just blink and just use my gut reaction. <laughs> Yeah, Tim, did you learn nothing from the book? <laughs> Pretty much. <Yeah. laughs> That's why I give this a 2.5 oh, out of 5. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>, brutal. <laughs> what did you learn, bro? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I'll just say I'll give him credit for bringing these topics to the mainstream, mm-hmm. um, to pop culture. I had a lot of critiques, but at least he's getting some ideas out there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But still, 2.5. All right, that's fine, Tim. Uh, what are we reading next time? We are reading a book called The Movie Goer by Walter Percy, I think. Um, Isn't it Walker Percy? Is it Walker? It might be. I don't know. It's it's a book that I feel like has flown under the radar for a lot of people, me included. I just saw it on someone's like recommended reading list, and it sounded really interesting. Mm-hmm. And we both like movies a lot. Mm-hmm. It's set in like New Orleans, um, mm-hmm. so that should be a good book. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it because our last... What did we read last time? Oh, yeah, our last couple have not been fiction. This is going to be a fiction. Right. right? So, yeah. It's going to be nice to change it up. And then, uh, yeah, go to our website, twoguysonebook.com, and you can read the books with us, leave comments, and we'll discuss them. Yes, absolutely. 
Thanks for listening. <laughs> All two of you. <laughs> 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 All right. Is that good? Yeah. Okay.